0: The more we tell ourselves we can't have something or we restrict it or that it's bad, the more likely we are to have a charged relationship with that food. The more likely we are to feel anxious around it, to actually binge on it. That's why the beginning part of intuitive eating, allowing this unconditional permission to enjoy all foods is really important. And it can be really scary for some people. After a while, the response to that becomes less intense and those foods become very normalized. So you're able to for example eat a donut when you want to and there's you know a much more balanced relationship with food and way less of the catapulting between restriction and and binging.
1: That's registered dietitian Taylor Wolfram and this is The Proof Podcast. Hello, my friends, we meet again. It's a pleasure to be joining you for another episode. I hope all is well at your end. For first-time listeners, welcome. It's great to be connected, and hopefully this is the first of many times that we get to hang out together. I'm Simon Hill, your show host, nutritionist, physiotherapist, and author. This show is dedicated to making science-based lifestyle decisions, In a world of misinformation and disinformation, my goal, what I'm trying to achieve here, is to bring you agenda-free, nuanced information to help you optimize your health so you can feel better today and feel better for longer. I'm also a big believer in considering the effect our lifestyle choices have on the world around us, another theme we'll explore together. Today, I sit down with registered dietitian and intuitive eating advocate and guru Taylor Wolfram. I've been aware of Taylor from afar for a while now and really appreciate the work that she's doing. As regular listeners will know, I'm pretty judgment-free when it comes to things like counting calories, intermittent fasting, etc. I see these as tools that can be helpful for certain individuals depending on their circumstances and goals. However, they clearly aren't for everyone. And in fact, in certain circumstances, tools like these and diet culture in general can lead to an unhealthy relationship with food. So what do we do if we have an unhealthy relationship with food? That, my friends, is the topic of today's conversation with Taylor Wolfram. Please do enjoy, and I'll catch you on the other side. in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Hi Taylor, thank you so much for joining me.
0: Hi Simon, thanks for asking me to be here. I'm really excited for our conversation.
1: Yes, me too. I'm really looking forward to to learning more about you and your approach to nutrition and dietetics, veganism, and and how you think about that within your own life and and your practice with clients, uh, diet culture, and the implications of this, and and really how we can reframe or possibly reframe some of our thoughts to build a healthier relationship with food i think this is a very very important topic it probably makes sense here to start with your personal journey and then we can expand into some of these topics from there why nutrition as a as a career and and why veganism i know that you've been vegan for over 13 years now walk me through that path
0: yeah definitely Let's see, what even came first? It's so tough because they kind of happened at a similar time for me, but they weren't super related, <laughs> which I know doesn't, doesn't make a lot of sense. I guess I'll start with the nutrition part first. So I'd always kind of been a little science nerd growing up and in, in school, and you know just loved science. And I remember my first anatomy class in high school; I loved that, and um, wanted to become a, a medical doctor actually. And started out my you know university studies as a pre med student, but a couple of years into that, and you know working with some doctors and just learning more about the actual field. I became less interested in it and didn't really think it was for me, both in terms of the practice of medicine and and just kind of the philosophy of it and how little time you actually get with patients um, and the lack of focus on lifestyle, but then also just the lifestyle that physicians have. I I knew I wanted to have more work-life balance (laughs) than traditionally most, most doctors have, um, and so that's when I started thinking about, you know, moving to something else in healthcare. And I had taken some nutrition classes and always been interested in it, um, but had never really considered it a career option. So I just started to talk to some different mentors and professors and um decided to to make the switch and kind of never looked back. So that's how it was for me in terms of just wanting to work in healthcare, but having more of that personal time with the clients and really getting to know them and work on lifestyle and behavior, not just looking at diseases and medication and that kind of thing.
1: And where did sort of veganism enter your life? Talk me through that.
0: Yeah. So it entered my life around the same time. I was an undergrad student in university, Um, but I'm born and raised here in in the Midwestern United States, um, which is very meat and dairy, corn fed, kind of, you know, traditional American diet. I didn't know any, even vegetarians growing up. So for me, when I got to university and had more autonomy over food, you know, eating in dining halls, I just started realizing I didn't love eating meat very much. And I, and I didn't have to, there were actually a lot of options at at my dining hall. And that was great so I got curious about what that meant. (laughs) Like, does that mean I'm a vegetarian now? What does that even mean? Um, So I started looking into it and that's where I just started learning about animal agriculture and, and just other ways that animals are used and abused and thought, you know, wow, I I never really considered it in this way. Like, yes, I knew that I was eating animals, (laughs) but like so many people, I had that cognitive dissonance. Um, So for me, as soon as I kind of you know, the light bulb went off, so to speak, it it, it felt like it was all, you know, kind of downhill from there. I got connected with an animal rights group at my university, learned more about veganism, the egg and dairy industry, you know, vivisection, lots more ways that animals are harmed. And I really thought, you know, this is important and this matters to me. And so, yeah, I just got more involved with activism, both at, at my university and then also in the city that I, I was in at the time and, and slowly kind of shifted over the course of a few months. Um, you know, not just my food and eating pattern to being vegan, but, you know, other sort of lifestyle things as, as well. So for me, the vegan part was really about animal rights and ethics, not so much of, you know, a tool for nutrition and health.
1: This is thirteen odd years ago. Uh, a lot has changed in the world. I think you know there is a, a much stronger view over the years that a diet that is animal-free can be done in a way that is very nourishing and and very healthy for someone. I wonder, you know, thirteen odd years ago, you're going through university. You've you've started to think about the ethical side of your food choices. Uh, how did you go about seeking out information? What were your resources to to lean on at that time to, to help you kind of understand, well, if I'm going to remove those foods, what will I uh, eat instead? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, great question. It is so different. Um, nowadays, just the accessibility, not only of information, but of the foods themselves has really exploded, which is great oh my gosh, vegan cheese 13 years ago was not good or plentiful. Um, Yeah. So I think this is where the activism really came in helpful too, is that I was lucky to have a community of vegans and I lived in a city at the time. So I wasn't in a small town by myself. So, you know, there were grocery stores that had options. There were restaurants that had options. I kind of had, you know, friends and mentors to help me along the way, which was I was really lucky to have because I know a lot of people don't have that and they feel really alone or kind of lost and not sure where to turn. However, social media has definitely changed that. Um, but you know, even though I kind of got into veganism for for the animals, um, you know, I certainly have my fair share of time, you know, kind of sifting through the different kind of plant based uh, diet ideas, if if you will say, um, you know, the different doctors who are promoting different kinds of plant-based diets. Um, I was in Cleveland at the time where the Esselstyns lived, you know, the Cleveland Clinic, Dr. Esselstyn was there. So like we had Dr. Esselstyn come and present for our animal rights group. So, you know, those sorts of resources were available at the time, Dr. McDougall, that sort of stuff. So, you know, I was aware of and kind of consuming that information as well.
1: Okay. So I think that some of that is going to kind of tie into our further discussion around diet culture and restriction. And I'll be interested to get your opinion on uh, some of the kind of views within the plant-based community and areas where you think we could do better or uh, at least uh, improve our messaging and then sort of approach why don't we we go through your approach what is your philosophy and approach to nutrition today as a registered dietitian what are the the sort of key things that you try to focus on to help your patients achieve the the best outcomes how would you kind of describe that approach
0: great question um there're definitely a few kind of key strategies i guess you could say that i focus on and Number one would would be abundance, right? Having an abundance of variety of kinds of foods, which on the flip side would would be restrictions. So you know, moving away from any sort of restrictions or, or limitations with food, and also consistency. That's a big problem a lot of people have, just because you know, capitalism, we're working all the time, we're busy, we're disconnected from our bodies. And a lot of people have very chaotic eating patterns where they're not eating consistently throughout the day. So for a lot of people, that's where we'll start with just eating regularly (laughs) and eating enough and eating a variety, eating balanced. And those can sound like very boring, basic strategies, but a lot of people struggle there and we can't you know, get into the nitty gritty stuff until we have a really solid foundation first.
1: And so I guess your approach, would you say that it differs to a typical approach within nutrition and dietetics? Or is this something that you learned at university and that you feel, you know, most dietitians are kind of approaching in the same manner?
0: Yeah. So, you know, I'd definitely say that I have... um you know, created my approach and kind of massaged it over the years, taking from different philosophies and modalities, like intuitive eating, which I know we'll we'll talk about, and like health at every size and those sorts of things. But, you know, marrying that with medical nutrition therapy and vegan nutrition, and also just what I know works for people based on my clinical experience. And I think that's so important to remember, too, is that our clients bring so much information and a wealth of knowledge to us and can help us practice better too
1: we often hear people talking about developing a healthy relationship with food whether it's a clinician talking about helping people achieve that or someone who's expressing you know themselves saying that they wish they had a healthy relationship with food and that that's what they're sort of aspiring to what does a healthy relationship with food mean? What does that actually look like?
0: Yeah. Oh, gosh. You're asking such wonderful questions. I I love it. (laughs) Um, To me, I think it, and obviously this differs for everyone, right? This is going to be very individualized. um, And I love asking this question to people, right? Like if a client were to come to me and say, I want to have a healthier relationship with food, I would ask them, what do you mean by that? Um, But for me, in general, I would say, you know, being able to live your life without feeling obsessed and stressed about food. So being able to eat consistently, abundantly balanced and enjoy food and meet your nutrient needs without that adding so much extra stress to your life and without it preoccupying your thoughts all day long, I think in a nutshell, we could say that would be considered a healthy relationship with food.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would certainly, from my personal experience, I would definitely agree with that. And I think and none of us are perfect. There are certainly times where I have had to kind of rein myself in and think, you know, I'm I'm focusing a little too much on, on food here. And uh, you know, try and I know that word balance is probably overused to death a little bit, but there is some truth in in sort of restoring. That that balance, so that you know you're not hyper focusing on food to the point where you're not enjoying your life. I've got uh, a few questions here about disordered eating that I'd like to kind of navigate through before we talk about uh, your kind of approach uh, and how you help people uh, think about intuitive eating as a as a kind of solution. How prevalent is disordered eating today?
0: Oh gosh. Um, so disordered eating is a little bit more difficult to define than an eating disorder because eating disorders have very well defined diagnostic criteria, um, and even that is imperfect. And there, you know, it puts people in boxes, and sometimes people don't fit perfectly in those in those boxes. But I would say the majority of people, at least in America, are walking around with some level of disordered eating because of the world that we live in (laughs) and and just how we're taught to think about food, to behave with food. In terms of specific statistics, um, I know the National Eating Disorder Association has those for different eating disorder diagnoses in terms of anorexia nervosa, binge eating disorder, bulimia nervosa, et cetera. Um, But because disordered eating isn't a defined diagnosis, we don't have hard and fast numbers, but there are certain maybe behaviors that we could... um, Say, are indicative of disordered eating and certain, um, you know, thought patterns, right? It's not just the behaviors, but like we were talking about in terms of feeling obsessive about food or feeling highly anxious about food.
1: Mm -hmm. And within our populations, who are the the sort of most vulnerable, most at risk uh, people who are, you know, more likely to adopt some of these kind of disordered eating habits?
0: That's a really important topic because I think a lot of people have a stereotype uh, in their head of who struggles with food issues. Being like a young, thin, white, cisgender, heterosexual woman, typically, um, people usually envision someone who's extremely thin, right? Um, And that's That's not always the case, at least for diagnosable eating disorders. We know that one in three people with an eating disorder identifies as male. So that squashes, you know, kind of that gender myth right there. Um, But also there's definitely this body size stereotype of who struggles with disordered eating or who struggles with certain kinds of disordered eating Um, and people of all body sizes can. Like people in larger bodies can have anorexia and struggle with r- restrictive eating disorders. Also, folks in the LGBTQ community, specifically transgender people and gender um, nonconforming and non-binary folks are at much higher risk for disordered eating. And a lot of that has to do with body image and maybe, you know, gender dysphoria. Um, but we also we know that there is a genetic component there is definitely a a link within families. So, family history is is definitely a strong indicator for disordered eating um, and eating disorders. Also, mental health, things like anxiety, OCD may commonly occur with disordered eating or eating disorders. Kind of being like a type A personality, being a little bit of a perfectionist can also be linked. Um, Of course, having any sort of body image issue absolutely is linked to disordered eating. And then we just see, you know, the culture at large with the value on thinness and, you know, standard beauty ideals and, you know, kids may be teased for their bodies. All of these things can kind of come together and interact in the perfect storm to create a disordered relationship with food for somebody.
1: Yeah, that's kind of what I want to Dig into here is I know that you talk a bit about diet culture and and this you know essentially it's a bit of an umbrella term for a number of different things that kind of exist within our society that can act as a, a trigger I guess so to speak uh, for disordered eating and and body image issues. Is is diet culture one of the major reasons why you think many people do have a poor relationship with food today?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. For sure. When we're looking at those societal factors, you know, if we were kind of to break down these factors into big categories, we would see like biological risk factors, right? Like the genetic component or the familial history, we'd have psychological components like different mental illnesses. And then we have the societal components and absolutely the diet culture and weight stigma is is a huge part of that.
1: So within this kind of umbrella term of diet culture, uh, or perhaps you can define it, it's a a phrase that's used uh, quite a bit. If someone hasn't come across diet culture, what does it kind of mean? I know that you expand on this uh, on your website and and, uh, in various other places and you talk about good foods and bad foods and counting calories and all of that. Perhaps you could kind of just wrap up what diet culture actually means.
0: Yeah, you know, this is inspiring me to to come up with a really succinct definition because it is difficult. Like you said, it's really the culmination of so so many different <laughs> issues or systems kind of interacting and, and coming together. But underneath a lot of it is the sense of anti-fatness, right, and the value of, of thinness and pursuing that through dietary restriction is usually what it looks like. And then there's also, you know, this element of of healthism, which may be a term that you or some of your listeners have come across, maybe not, where there's this kind of belief that, you know, being quote unquote healthy is, uh, makes you morally superior and that you are better. You are a better person. You are a good person if you care about your health, if you try to be healthy. Um, But it also comes along with this belief that, health is accessible to everyone and that we can fully control our health. So at the end of the day, it's really this creating this hierarchy, right, of bodies based not only on size, but, you know, quote unquote, healthiness or what we would consider to to be a healthy body, which in the Western world tends to look like a thin young white
1: person. When you say this kind of, presumption that health is accessible to everyone i think that's a really really interesting point can you expand on on what that means if someone's listening and thinking, well, most people can, you know, choose fruits and vegetables and and get outside and and go for a run. What is it that you would like people to consider here?
0: Yeah, and I think even those assumptions are important to look at. We know a lot of people live in communities where they can't access much produce or where it's not safe to go outside for a run. So that's important too, right? Like our frame of reference and saying, well, just because it's easy for me doesn't mean that's easy. For everybody. So I like to direct this conversation to social determinants of health. And when we look at, you know, what actually is contributing to what we consider health. And we, and we do have like data on this, which is helpful. And we see that those individual behaviors, like you mentioned, like eating, how we move, alcohol, smoking, sexual activity, like those sorts of individual lifestyle behaviors, which so many of us, Assume or equate with, like, just do this and you'll be healthy, only accounts for like 30% of what impacts health. And this is at least here in, in the US. The rest is really made up of environmental factors, socioeconomic factors, you know, where you're living, what the environment is like. Do you even have access to healthcare that is non stigmatizing and high quality? A lot of these things that, regardless of you know, what you do or the food that you eat, these other things are going to have a a much more significant impact. And regardless of that, I think also recognizing that, you know, folks do have certain diseases, chronic diseases, acute illnesses, and just because someone does have a health condition or not, or maybe struggling in any certain way, doesn't make them any you know, less good of a person. It doesn't make them less valuable, whether or not we think that they caused it or they could potentially be doing something about it.
1: If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Insight Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, Insight Tracker's ultimate plan and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com/simon. That's insidetracker.com/simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. I'm curious, through your career, did a, a kind of light bulb go off? Did you listen to one lecture? Was it through just you know trying to help your patients and and seeing patterns you know where where did your more considered approach which is what I would describe this as it's it's a it's a very considered sophisticated approach to thinking about someone that's sitting in front of you and all of the various factors that are contributing to how they present on that day and also what they can and cannot do when they leave your clinic you know what's within their control and what's not. Where did that come from, you know, over the last sort of 13 years? Is there is there anything specific that you would go back and point to?
0: Yeah, good question. Um, the answer is no. It has definitely evolved. And I'd say more so for me, absolutely, over the last, gosh, I don't know, maybe um, five to, to 10 years for sure of, you know, spending a lot more time and in, in just more social justice groups looking at health rather than just you know, the traditional dietetic space and and learning from uh, a wider variety of, of people. Because again, even in the dietetic space, it's super homogenous. It is mostly thin white women. And so if that's all we're learning from, that's all we're going to know. But I would say that it's, so it's been a mixture of, you know, learning from more diverse people in terms of, you know, trainings and lectures and, and supervision and things like that. But also, Absolutely clinical experience. And I think a lot of people come to more of these inclusive approaches that way when they realize, okay, the way I was taught or kind of the classic weight centric model, it's not working for a lot of my clients. And I I don't feel good doing it. And maybe I don't even feel like That ethical of a provider or even that effective of a provider, if I'm just kind of doing this very narrow focused work that doesn't necessarily seem to be translating for my patients and clients long term.
1: When patients are presenting to you and they have, you know, found themselves kind of wrapped up in this diet culture and it's clearly affecting them. You sort of spoke into the prevalence of disordered eating and who it's affecting, but I'm I'm interested to hear from you how they're presenting. How is this actually affecting them in their daily life, their quality of life? What do you actually see?
0: So for a lot of people, um, it's, it's things that we've talked about before, like chaotic eating schedules, right? Maybe um, not eating all day and then binging at night is a very uh, common presentation this sense of high anxiety overwhelm of I don't know how to eat. I've read everything out there. I'm so confused. I've tried all these diets. My weight has gone up and down. My health has gone up and down. Nothing seems to work. And it's this overwhelming sense of disconnection with their body, but also distrust. Like I need someone to just tell me what to do because I don't know what to do and nothing out there has has helped me. And so a lot of people present in, in a very kind of helpless and stuck way. Um, anxiety is extremely common. I'd say almost every single one of my clients has some level of anxiety going on.
1: So where does, I guess, when you are working with these folks... Where does intuitive eating come in as a a kind of tool within your toolbox? Is this uh, one of the sort of major solutions that you see to sort of "quote unquote" fighting uh, diet culture?
0: Sure, yeah, it it can definitely be. It's not the end all be all, and and I think um, you know incorporating it with a with other. Approaches is really helpful, but it depends on where the person is at and kind of what they're struggling with. I find a lot of people need almost like a nutrition rehab period (laughs) where we focus on that foundation of consistency and adequacy um, because you're not going to be able to connect appropriately with your body's hunger and fullness cues, for example, if you haven't been nourishing yourself adequately there's, you know, you can't just jump into intuitive eating and be like, oh, just listen to your body. It's like, there's a lot of kind of foundational work that needs to happen first. This is going to be different for someone who actually has a diagnosed eating disorder. You know, they're going to need obviously a bit more structure and and guidance. Um, But I kind of describe, you know, for a lot of people, you know, intuitive eating is is on the horizon, but we kind of need to um, have the training wheels on for a little bit, so to speak.
1: If someone is hearing intuitive eating, perhaps for the first time, or maybe they've heard it before but seen it defined differently or taken out of context, which is certainly something that I've come across and noticed, is a very inconsistency around how people are talking about intuitive eating so my question to you is is intuitive eating is it something that's been formalized is there a set kind of approach and philosophy has it been researched or is it more of a vague kind of term that people are just throwing out there
0: yeah this is so important Um, So, yes, it is a a legit framework. Um, It was developed almost 30 years ago now in 1995 uh, by two registered dietitians, which is awesome here in the United States, Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch. So at the time, obviously, there wasn't any research on intuitive eating because they were just (laughs) inventing it. But they looked at, at research on various things to help formulate this framework and now that it has been around for almost thirty years, there are hundreds of studies published on intuitive eating, which is really, really nice because we have data, you know, to kind of back up not only the physical, but you know the the mental health benefits of, of the approach, um, but there are 10 principles to it. If folks want to learn, they are outlined on their website, intuitiveeating.org. There's a book, there's a workbook. So yes, it is a very specific thing, I think the most succinct way to describe it is, and this is directly from the creators, they call it a dynamic interplay of instinct, emotion, and thought, which is so important because I think a lot of people assume it's just instinct, right? It's just eat whatever you want whenever you want. And they don't really recognize the emotional part of it or the logical kind of thought part of it. And so... That's something that I like to help teach my clients, right? Is that we kind of have these three main information sources to help us make choices about food. And yes, the instinctual, you know, physical part of it is important, but that's not all there is to it.
1: Yeah, I see that one come up quite a bit. The the kind of, well, if intuitive eating is about just listening to your body, what if my hunger signals are a little bit uh, skewed and perhaps my taste buds uh, have been hijacked by the, the the food industry. How do I know if what I'm craving is a biological kind of need for magnesium or iron or some some sort of a nutrient versus uh, something that just tastes good?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so we call that taste hunger. And that is just as legitimate as that physical hunger. And this is where we can see diet culture creep in, right? As we see people say, oh, well, if I'm craving X food, and I believe X food is unhealthy for whatever reason, then we're kind of putting that in a bad food category, right? And that's where we can set up, you know, kind of these issues within ourselves of, You know, the more we tell ourselves we can't have something or we restrict it or that it's bad, the more likely we are to have a charged relationship with that food, the more likely we are to feel anxious around it, to actually binge on it. And so that's why the beginning part of intuitive eating Allowing this unconditional permission to enjoy all foods is really important. And it can be really scary for some people, especially if they have a history of binge eating. A lot of people will say, Okay, well, if I did that, I would just eat, you know, donuts and french fries all day, every day. And for some people, they might go through a period where they are eating a lot of those foods because they were previously off limits. And this is really the first time where they are giving themselves unconditional, you know, permission to have those foods without any level of restriction. And what we see through this process that is called habituation is that after a while, the response to that becomes less intense and those foods become very normalized. So you're able to, you know, for example, eat a donut when you want to, otherwise, you know, it's fine. You don't feel really stressed or obsessive about it. Um, And there's, you know, a much more balanced relationship with food and way less of the catapulting between restriction and binging.
1: I'm interested in, you've obviously come across criticisms that people have put forward. With regards to intuitive eating, and I'm interested. You know, some of these may be valid, and and many times when there are criticisms online, it's more uh, trolling. But are there any kind of valid things that you've heard someone say with regards to intuitive eating? I'm kind of thinking out loud here, but I can imagine someone, maybe they're more classically trained, is thinking this sounds like a little bit like everything in moderation, and does that work in a food environment where there are a lot of uh, what nutrition scientists would describe as hyper palatable foods that food scientists have really engineered in a way that makes them easy to overconsume? And so I wonder, what do you think about that second part? And then as an extension of that, are there any other kind of criticisms that often come up?
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I love this because I think it is so important to address what are some of those common questions or criticisms. And so I guess I will say right off the bat, we do have some research on intuitive eating and its impact on dietary quality. And we don't see that dietary quality decreases significantly when people use this approach, which is great. So we don't see that people are eating, quote unquote, worse, right, or less nutritiously um, over time. But the statement about um, you know the hyperpalatable foods and the food environments, you know, while I think that's important to take into consideration, we also have to look at the impact that it has when we do restrict certain foods, and we do have some research on you know, quote unquote, sugar addiction. Right, there's a lot out there about sugar's addictive, it's poison, you can't have it, and what we see is that people and mice, there's animal studies, um, display addictive type behaviors with sugar after it's been restricted. But if they are given free access to it, they don't display those same behaviors. And so what we see is it's not necessarily the food itself, but the restriction of it. And I, and I don't just mean like actual physical restriction, like I'm never going to eat that again. But even just thinking about it, planning a diet, planning restrictions, saying I'm never going to keep it in the house again, even just a psychological part can can trigger in us a drive for that food, which makes sense, you know, physiologically, obviously, we're, we're programmed to seek out really tasty food and our body has really sophisticated mechanisms to help us not starve to death. And so, It's really the restriction part that we see drives a lot of the overeating. Now, I won't say that's the only reason why anyone may eat, you know, a lot of fast food or a lot of, you know, prepackaged snack foods. There, there are other factors. But in terms of, you know, should I be limiting this or not? There's, there's more to talk about there in terms of the act of limiting and what that's going to do.
1: Yeah, it's such a thought provoking conversation. I'm really enjoying it because, you know, you can see deep into a study just looking at the consumption of of a food and how it affects someone's say body weight, for example. And you can start to to sort of label that food as bad. But what you're getting at here is the big question is, you know, what stands to have a greater negative effect on someone's health? Is it restricting a certain food or is it including them? so you know it's 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 fascinating and i'm i'm glad that there is some research looking at intuitive eating and how it affects someone's overall diet quality i think that's really important evidence i'd love to put some of that into the the show notes is there anything here regarding intuitive eating that we we haven't covered that you think is important for for people who are perhaps new to this to to kind of understand
0: Yeah, you know, I'd say it's, it's definitely a process. And like I said, it can be really scary at first. Um, And it it takes time. And it's, there's not like a defined amount of time, like, oh, just follow these 10 principles for three months. And, you know, you'll heal your relationship with food there. You know, no one can make a promise like that to you. But I'd say if if you are interested, you know, to definitely read the book, work through the workbook. But if if you're really struggling or aren't sure how to apply these principles or just really terrified to dive in, to actually work, you know, with a registered dietitian who is skilled in this area. Because they can really help you on an individual level work through some of this stuff in a way that works for you and at a pace that feels safe for you.
1: And do you feel like this approach, does it does it work for everyone? Or is there someone out there? Is there a type of person out there? Someone may be listening and thinking, you know what? I count calories. I think about certain foods that I don't like to eat a lot of. And I feel like I have a really healthy relationship with food. And I feel like I'm, I'm really happy and things are going well. How do you kind of... Do you have any views on that?
0: Yeah. I think... You know, the principles of intuitive eating absolutely can be applied by everyone. Now that doesn't mean it's going to look the same for everyone or that they're going to be fully accessible to everyone. There's so many factors, right, that are are going to impact that. But I'm not here to like force this on anyone. If if someone's like, I'm gonna do my diet thing and I'm good, you know, you do you. But if you're someone who's who Feels stressed about food. Who who feels that disconnection with your body and distrust with your body, and you want to just feel more calm and feel more like you can trust your body to tell you when, what, and how much to eat, and not feel so stressed about it, not feel like you have to count calories or grams or macros or, or anything. Then I think this is something to look into.
1: And even if you, I think there could be someone else listening who has. Uh, adopted some of those kind of diet culture habits who perhaps thinks that they're they're happy but really if they stop and do a bit of an audit and think about it and get you know beneath the surface they may find that there is a bit of stress and a bit of anxiety there attached to some of these things so uh I'm I'm really glad that you were able to share this because I think it is a super powerful tool that certain people can lean into to improve their relationship with food and and ultimately just improve their quality of life which is what you know we all we all want for everyone. I'm interested here if we change gears a, a tiny bit how your sort of philosophy here with intuitive eating intersects with veganism. And before we kind of unpack this section, perhaps we take a a tiny step back. As a registered dietitian yourself, how do you kind of operate when it comes to giving advice to your patients, the people you see uh, with regards to health versus kind of the ethical nature of their, their food choices?
0: Yeah. So I see all kinds of clients. I don't just work with vegans. I'd say probably just half of my caseload are, are vegan. So I'm not trying to convince anyone to go vegan. Um, I have, you know, that specialty of knowledge and can help folks with that, but I'm not exclusive to that. And for non-vegan clients, I I would never pressure them to go vegan for whatever reason. If they mention they're interested to me, I'm going to ask them, you know, why is that? Um, you know, what are your motivations, intentions? What are your expectations for if you do start, you know, shifting your lifestyle that way? Um, does that answer your question?
1: Yeah, perfect. And your approach to the way that you're seeing all of your patients is based around this idea of abundance versus restriction, and. I understand where you're coming from, but I do think some might be thinking about this idea of, of ditching diet culture, embracing intuitive eating and thinking, "Hmm, well, isn't that at odds with being vegan? A sort of quote unquote diet that eliminates animal foods. Many would see that as restrictive in nature, not being a, a sort of framework that permits all foods. So, I'm kind of uh, interested in the intersection of that and what your view is.
0: Yeah, that's such a common um, belief, and especially in in healthcare and among dietitians and and even my peers, you know, in the intuitive eating eating disorder space. And so, it's so fascinating because you know I've kind of, I'm in these different spaces and different philosophies, and I and I come up against uh, challenges and barriers. Within each of them, you know, not only all of like the plant-based diet culture in the vegan space, but then there's this anti-vegan bias, you know, in the intuitive eating space.
1: You're taking on a lot.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's get it's getting better over the years, I, I will say, but you're you said it exactly right. It's like, well, if you're taking, if you're eliminating food, then that's restrictive and that's a diet, and that's bad. So this is where the, the concept of intention and motivation are, are really, really important. Um, and we actually have a little bit of research to support this too, um, is we see that folks who are vegan for ethical reasons are not at, at, a, at a higher risk of disordered eating versus people who eat that way for health reasons are. And so that's where we really look at restriction as well as restriction within the frame of veganism. And because the food industry has come so far and a lot of people living in a lot of areas can get access to a wide variety of vegan foods beyond whole plant foods, right? So you can get vegan pizza and cookies and cakes and donuts and sausages and and really eat a vegan version of almost anything, right? In a a quote unquote non-restrictive way you know, we would say maybe that isn't restrictive as long as the person also doesn't feel restricted, which is an individualized thing. Someone could feel restricted. Someone could say, no, I want the real cow burger or something Um, versus, you know, eliminating oil and vegan processed foods and sugar and things like that. We would consider that to be restrictive, you know, when that's motivated by you know, weight loss or this fear of certain health conditions or kind of that, you know, more of the stressed, anxious stuff.
1: Yeah, I think that's really important. You know, often we can kind of paint a, a group of people with a broad brushstroke, but you've made a really important point there about intent. How are people finding them their way to a vegan diet? Is it through the lens of restriction? that is kind of attracting them to that style of eating or is it an ethical decision and therefore there is no restrictive element?
0: Yeah. And it can be both, which is really tricky. Someone could be an animal rights activist and be really in the ethics of veganism and also struggle with their relationship with food and maybe even have an eating disorder. And and I see it in my clients. I have I have vegans in eating disorder recovery who have been able to be vegan the whole time because for them that's not part of their eating disorder. They're full-on ethical vegan. They eat all the vegan foods and it's it's not restrictive. And then I have other people who have kind of come to terms with saying, "Okay, I, I do see now that like I started eating this way because I thought it would make me thin and I started eliminating more and more foods and I actually needed to reintroduce a lot of foods in order to to heal. And so it's so nuanced.
1: I'm interested in what you think about the kind of health side of the the plant-based message and and obviously I put out quite a bit of information about this and I would love to know what I can do better and 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 just your your take on even some of the more restrictive ideas out there. You mentioned the Esselstyn diet and the Ornish diet. Do you feel like some of the the kind of rhetoric around a perfect plant-based diet is harmful?
0: Yeah. You know, unfortunately, yes. I, I can't tell you how many clients, you know, I've had when, when we dig into their history about, you know, where where their disorder began and when things really started to shift for them and what were some of those inputs. And for a lot of folks who, who are vegan, will say it was a lot of that plant-based stuff. It was a lot of the creating the fear around oil and salt and sugar and processed foods. Someone just told me there's a plant-based doctor who even said like multivitamins cause cancer. And I'm just like, Oh my goodness. There's so many of these, you know, pieces of misinformation that get planted into people's brains and then they just grow and they stress them out. And so you know it's not to say everyone who eats that way or everyone who hears those messages is going to end up you know with an eating disorder or with a disorder relationship with food but i do see that a lot of the time
1: yeah well i'm glad to say i'm i'm not on the no oil or the low fat kind of campaign and i do believe consistency is much more important than than any single food or or meal but i s- still have learned quite a bit so far from this conversation and and I'm always open to ways that I can improve my, my message to, to help people with navigating this space, which is you know super, super confusing. I've got uh, another question here around um, vegan diets. Do you see a vegan diet as something for everyone? Or is it a potential trigger for someone who has a history of disordered eating and and sort of, you know, if someone's in that cycle of disordered eating, is a vegan diet something that they should be considering or where do you want them to be pointing their attention to?
0: You know, it really depends on the person and it can go either way. And I've heard really powerful stories, you know, in in either direction of some people saying like, you know, no matter how many times I try, even though I'm like fully recovered, just switching to certain vegan alternatives for whatever reason just triggers my eating disorder. And so I know that for my well-being that I, you know, just cannot eat fully vegan. And some people, that brings a lot of shame and guilt, especially if they are in it for the animals. And when that comes up, you know, I like to talk about the non-food ways that people can make a difference for animals and also, talking about the definition of veganism and that phrase in there as far as is possible and practicable. And if eating, you know, 100% or fully vegan is is really damaging your mental health, is that possible or practicable for you? You know, that's something for you to, to work out. But on the flip side, I've had people who say that going vegan was like the final step in their eating disorder recovery, which is so interesting to me and really powerful because, you know, these folks will say that it, it helped them see food as something bigger than themselves. It helped them see food as a tool for social justice, not just as, you know, a way to control their bodies and that it really helped them align with their values. And it actually helped them, you know, eat a wider variety of foods and go out to eat more. And so it really depends on the person.
1: I've used the, the kind of phrase vegan diet uh, a few times. And I'm, I'm curious, I know that some people are not a big fan of of that kind of phraseology. I, I guess is that something that you've thought about? Do you have a, a view on on calling a diet that is free of animal products a vegan diet, or what language do you kind of like to use?
0: You know, I think it can be confusing. So my personal thoughts, coming as like someone you know in the animal rights space, is that it can be confusing. But then also someone coming from the intuitive eating space is that you know the word diet which which I know we can talk about in a minute um but I think you know and again I'm not trying to like be the vegan police or gatekeeper or whatever but it can sometimes water down what veganism is if people just see it as a plant-based diet and don't understand that it's about so much more than food and it's not about individual health or just what you eat right it's about what you wear and the products you use and the entertainment you experience and you know all of these other things so we know that the term vegan itself is actually rooted in animal rights there's a definition for that and so if someone is just making changes to food and is really just like eating plant based That's something different. And so, you know, folks will say, you know, just call that plant based or call it something else because, you know, we don't want to confuse people. We really want like the focus to be on the animals when we talk about veganism.
1: Yeah. And then within the scientific literature, that gets a little more confusing because plant based is used for the DASH diet and Mediterranean diets. And, you know, these are diets that are kind of plant forward. Uh, I have thought about that. I was thinking that perhaps in those studies, animal free might be a better way of describing cuz if there's an intervention that subjects have been put on that's that's usually a dietary intervention has nothing to do with ethics.
0: Right, right. Yeah, exactly. And like you said, vegan can just be like a succinct or maybe a mainstream term to describe animal-free diet. But yeah, there is no standard definition of plant-based and so that causes issues. (laughs) And while you'd think there's a standard definition of veganism, there was one study I read, I was digging into the literature on veganism and eating disorders not too long ago, and you know, you always got to make sure to review how the study defines diets because when they define veganism, it you know was no animal products, but then was like no root vegetables, no garlic, and I was like, wait, what? Where did they even get this? And so that was wild to me as well. So we could go on and on about <laughs> how researchers are defining different diets.
1: Uh, kind of eating disorders more prevalent within people that are adopting vegan diets, animal-free diets?
0: The small amount of research we have says yes, but we're getting more refined research as time goes on, which I think is really important. And like I mentioned before, the the motivation piece, researchers are starting to measure that too, which does make a difference. But there was you know, research in the 90s that came out. There was one study in particular, I think, in college students, that showed that female college students who identified as semi-vegetarian, whatever that means, uh, were at like the highest risk out out of all the eating patterns for for eating disorders. And that's where a lot of the bias came from within the eating disorder community of, oh my gosh, any sort of vegan or vegetarian eating, like super high risk. But we continue to see that in studies that will break down the different styles of plant-based eating is that the quote-unquote semi-vegetarian or flexitarian eating styles tend to be associated with higher risk. Veganism may or may not be. And we know that if it's ethically motivated, tends to not be. But there's there's something about this kind of sometimes I eat meat, sometimes I don't group that may be correlated with some sort of dietary restriction. Maybe they're using it you know, to control calories or, or whatever. So, The research is very emerging in this area, but overall, yes, we do see a higher prevalence. And I will say that most of this is on disordered eating um, behaviors and different tools that are used to measure that in the literature. We have very little data on vegans or vegetarians in clinical eating disorder populations.
1: Yeah, it sounds like we need another space where there's more research needed and you likely need, instead of cross-sectionally just looking at people at one point in time, you need to follow people and then that way you can better understand that kind of uh, relationship you know, as to uh, how they entered into this way of eating and therefore how that affected their outcome.
0: Oh my gosh. We could say the same about everything with nutrition, yeah. right? I mean, yeah, it's like cross-sectional data is often the best we have. And yeah, yeah if we could have RCTs for literally every, every nutrition question out there, that would be great. But we just don't.
1: Yeah. For the time being, we'll make the most of what we have. Okay. So tie this all together for me to sort of put a bow into this conversation. If If someone is stuck... In a cycle of disordered eating, and is clearly uh, struggling with diet culture. For the sake of this question, let's let's assume that their dietary label, whatever dietary pattern they're following, doesn't matter. They could be following a, a kind of animal-free diet or, or not. How does someone break the cycle? You've outlined intuitive eating, but from a practical point of view, what tips? Do you have for someone to to change the way they're thinking? Because some of these ideas that are instilled by diet culture, you know, such as exercising off food, or having cheat days, or avoiding food before uh, some sort of performance, or a night out with friends, or obsessing over calories, these are ideas that they've likely had for a long time. And maybe our ideas that are shared with their friends and their family, how do people sort of get started in navigating this?
0: Yeah. Like you said, it, it can be difficult to even know where to begin when some of this stuff is so insidious and deep-seated, right? If it's all we've ever known and that's what everyone around us is doing, it's hard to even see... A different way to do it, which is why I highly recommend, you know, working with a, a dietitian and a therapist who specialize in this because there really is no one size fits all, you know, one, two, three, ABC, just do this and you're good. But if that's not accessible or, you know, you're, you're waiting to work with someone... I would say first to kind of do an audit and and look at how you're eating and, and what you're doing and how you may be controlling or restricting your food intake and starting to move a, a, away from that. And some of that is very concrete, right? It might be you know, tracking calories or using an app to count macros or physically weighing or measuring food, physically weighing or measuring your body, which is something we haven't even talked about, um, but definitely intersects with a lot of reasons why people are controlling their food intake. And to move away from, you know, the, the harmful behaviors and depending on what's going on with you like like i mentioned before is first getting into a consistent pattern of eating every few hours right trying to have at most meals protein grain or starch fruit or veg and a fat source you know eating variety eating abundance and not eliminating foods keeping them you know off limits. So incorporating what I call fun foods or pleasure foods, um, which a lot of people might see as desserts, you know, or salty snack foods, things like that. So really just creating that openness, but also that consistency. And that can seem really scary and chaotic in of itself. I'm like, well, how do I even do that? And that's where I recommend people work with someone. Because again, if you're coming from a place that is, you know, very disordered or is extremely rigid, you might need to step back from that very slowly. So it might look like not counting calories at dinner, right? Or not measuring your oatmeal in the morning. I guess one thing to really tie everything t- together, you know, in terms of the veganism part but also, you know, the intuitive eating part for me is is the concept of body autonomy. Right. And, and respecting bodies and letting bodies do, you know, what, what they want to do. So, you know, a lot of vegans will apply that, you know, ethos to non-human animals. But I think it's really important to look at how we can apply that to human animals as well and ourselves, especially how we look at how we may try to control our body size.
1: Brilliant. And if folks uh, are kind of uh, listening and would like to connect with you to hear more from you on this topic, Where's the, the best place or places for them to find you?
0: You can find me on Instagram at Taylor Wolfram RD, and my website is Um I'm not currently taking on new nutrition counseling clients right now, but I do have an online course. Um, it's called the Anti Diet Vegan Nutrition Online Course. And so it's not teaching you intuitive eating, but it's teaching you how to meet your nutrient needs as a vegan without you know any other diet culture or restrictive stuff.
1: Incredible. Well, I'll put a uh, a link to that in the show notes as well, uh, along with some links to some of those studies that you were talking about before on on intuitive eating if anyone would like to check those out. Uh thank you so much for for making time to do this. It was uh incredible uh please to come back and and chat with me in the future.
0: Yeah, you're so welcome. Thank you, Simon. Bye.
1: There we go. I hope you found that interesting, instructive, illuminating, and clarifying. Of course, if you did, please share with your friends and family on the socials. The more people that we can help together, the better. And while you're there, make sure that we're connected. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at plant underscore proof. Quick one before I let you go. I am often asked what supplements I take probably one of the most common questions that I get, actually. So I finally got around and created an in-depth supplement guide, totally free, that you can download along with a bunch of other free guides at plantproof.com. Inside, it contains information about daily supplements for everyday wellness along with performance supplements. The daily supplement that I personally take is a multi-nutrient called Essential8 by NutriKind. This is a product I formulated for NutriKind alongside their team that specifically contains the eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall a little short in. Omega-3s from algae, B12, vitamin D3 from mushroom, iodine from seaweed, calcium, zinc, selenium, and iron the right forms in the right doses to complement your plant-rich diet. To find out more or subscribe to a monthly delivery, head to NutriKind.com, that's N-U-T-R-I-K-Y-N-D.com, and use the code plantproof for 15% off your purchase. So in summary, grab a copy of the supplement guide at plantproof.com, And if you are in the market for a daily multi-nutrient to cover your bases, head to NutriKind.com and use the code plantproof for 15% off. On that lovely note, it's time to bring this one to a close. Thank you so much for hanging out with me and for your ongoing interest in evidence-based nutrition. I appreciate you and I look forward to repeating it all again in a few days' time. Until then, remember... More plants, my friends, more plants.